Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. We're in Ezra 2 tonight. Ezra 1 talked about Cyrus letting him go back to Jerusalem. But I think Ezra 2 is better than Ezra 1. See, I slid that in there. Just my opinion. Uh, Here it is, verse 1. Now, these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. Chapter 2 is very similar to a Nehemiah chapter, which is like the records of who actually came back. Uh, There are differences between the two, which we'll get into tonight. So this was Cyrus that gave the mandate, and it was for more than just the Jewish people. Anybody that wanted to go and help them with reconstruction could do that. But it was mostly Jewish people that were into that. Babylon, in the Hebrew, the word is actually Babel, uh, which we know from the Old Testament is where they built the tower. It's where God says he split up humanity into language groups. Uh, The word Babel in the Hebrew means confusion. So it's the city of confusion, the original city of the planet Earth, and God split them up there. Verse 2, those who came with Zerubbabel were, I'm just going to stop at Yeshua. (laughs) Um, We're going to have a fun time with names tonight, because there's a lot of what's in this chapter, I think, is to be gained by looking at the names and what's there. So this was... uh, if you like that kind of study, we're digging in. Zerubbabel, and, and we, the name's used again in chapter 3, verse 8, is used interchangeably with verse 8 and chapter 5, verse 16, the name Sheshbazar. And you'd say, how could a human being have two names? And it's easy. Grant's birth name is Grant. His name that I call him is Buck. The name that his mom calls him is Gimo. So when you look at all of these things, Zerubbabel... In the Hebrew, means sown in Babel, right? Sheshbazar um, is of royal descent, or it means the worshiper of fire. So Zerubbabel has a Hebrew name, and then there's the name that Nebuchadnezzar called him. And they're two very different names. They mean very different things. Zerubbabel, one sown in Babylon or birthed in Babylon, is actually the name that gets used by Matthew in Matthew chapter 1. Zerubbabel is in the line of Jesus. So we're, we're still tracking this line of Messiah as we go through the Bible. And then right after that, you get the name, which in the Hebrew is Joshua or Yeshua. It means Jehovah is salvation. Uh, it is the high priest of the temple. Nehemiah mentions him too. Um, and there are two Babylonian prophets that mention this character, Yeshua. He doesn't show up in any of the stories, which is an interesting character in the Bible. We don't get a story about Yeshua. We just get the name. And Yeshua, high priest, as they leave Babylon, uh, becomes a, a kind of image of Jesus being our high priest too. But there actually was a high priest named Yeshua. Um, in Haggai chapter 1, verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Yeshua, Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people did fear before the Lord. So the mention of Yeshua tied to Haggai tells us something. Yeshua was one that was proclaiming the words of the prophet to the people. In other words, not only was Cyrus giving them a release to go, but in seeing Yeshua's name, they were also being told by their own prophets that they should go back and build the city. So they had a concert. And and, and honestly, this is, how do you know the Lord's telling you to do something? And in this case, you have the word of God saying to build him a house you have Cyrus telling them to go build a house and here's money and resources to do it. And they had their own prophets saying this along with the high priest guiding and encouraging people to do it. So Zechariah sees Joshua, Yeshua in a vision. So Yeshua plays into our prophetic vision too. And remember with prophecy, it usually comes true during that lifetime to confirm it. It also becomes an image of Jesus And it it can often be an image of the second coming. When it comes to this vision of Yeshua, he's standing in front of Satan, and he's the one resisting Satan in a vision that Zechariah has in his his book. So it's a really cool character. God then clothes him with clean clothes, and then he has this spiritual battle in the vision. So 
In the same passage, the angel says to Zechariah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have a charge of my courts, and I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. Hear, O Joshua, Yeshua, high priest. So again, they name him as high priest. But this becomes a messianic prophecy. So the use of this name in the Old Testament sets up some of these prophecies about Jesus, which in retrospect, they actually named him by name. Here's the rest of that prophecy. It's going to be familiar. You are to get a wonderful sign. For behold, I'm bringing forth my servant, the branch, which is Nazar. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, Yeshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. And behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. And in that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under the vine and under his fig tree. This Yeshua is a major picture. And in the prophecy, the immediate mention is of Yeshua, the high priest, which is the guy that went back from Babylon. The long-term thing is this is also an image of Jesus Christ who gets name by name along with the town he's going to be from, along with the fact that he'll be a servant Messiah, along with the fact that he'll remove iniquity. So you get all these things tied into this one name that gets listed here. So using a term from Jeremiah, the branch is a proper name. It should have a capital B on it. Jeremiah 23.5, this is what we know about the branch. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch and a king that shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice on all the earth. So Yeshua is an interesting name to throw into this list. And he's the first name listed after Zerubbabel. So put in there, Zerubbabel and the high priest then are the two leaders that go back with the first group. Ezra does not go back with the first group. So Ezra and Nehemiah come later, but these two characters who we really don't have a lot about in the histories, all we know is that they led this mission back to lead God's people back to Israel. So the mission of building the house of God, one that's commanded by God, includes this character that has the same exact name as the Greek Jesus. Um, or, you know, the, the Hebrew Yeshua or Joshua, uh, same thing, same image. And you remember at the beginning of the era of Judges, we had another leader called Joshua that was at the beginning of that era. So we have the beginning of that era, a Joshua, the beginning of the return to Babylon era with a high priest named Yeshua, and then we're going to have a Jesus that leads the church age. So at each of those ages, you get a person of that name that leads God's people. So this generation's putting it all together. They see the signs. They heard from the word of God. And you get this group of people that go back together. So let's go through the first group. Um, so Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, not the same one that we're going to read after Ezra. Sarariah, Eliah, Mordecai, not the same one from Esther. Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Baana. So that makes 12 leaders along with... Um, Nahamani, which is listed in Nehemiah, um, 12 leaders of the people, uh, again, just reflective of everything, 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Judah, which means 12 elders helping Moses. Um, you have this image throughout the Bible of 12 being the number of governance or leadership. And the same, uh, the same pieces here. Uh, the word Nehemiah means the comfort of Jehovah. Sarariah means ruled by Jehovah. Raeliah means the bearer of Jehovah. And then Mordecai means little man. Right? You get some weird things. And then you get Bilshan means in slander. And again, sometimes names don't always carry the connotation of their Hebrew meaning. Um, but in this case, you've got a real mix of people that had Jehovah-like names, which we saw from almost everybody before Babylon. But after Babylon, a lot of these names have nothing to do with Jehovah. And again, most everybody bent to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar set up. Remember the three that didn't got thrown in a fiery furnace. So we had, don't, most people chose to go with the Babylonian name they were given. There's very few people that resisted that. Mispar means number one in a batch. So like firstborn, like the big puppy. Bigvi means in my body. Rehum means compassion. Ba'ana in affliction. Hebrew names but definitely names that reflect the kind of period they're coming from. The number of men of the people of Israel. So the people of, 
We're going to see that phrase get used here. It's a small remnant of people. Um, during the census with David, there were 5 million Jewish people when you kind of put things together. What we have here is a list of the remnant that goes back to Israel. And the grand total, to save you the time on the math, is 42,360 of the people. Very small number. So the number of Jews definitely might have been prosperous in Babylonian, but the ones that really want to serve the Lord, extremely small number of people. And so you list these and they sound like big numbers, but in comparison to the golden age of David and Solomon, there's just next to nothing here. So, um, so 4,200, 4, 360 plus the people we're going to see in verse 65, uh, definitely a small group of people to go build a city and build a country. Some differences with Nehemiah in the numbers. Um, we should note that there's a difference between what Ezra gives and the people that actually arrive on the other side. This tells us something about the journey. They walked this journey across the desert. So the people will say, well, the number in Ezra is not the same as the number of Nehemiah. They're two different records. The people that actually show up in Jerusalem, the civic record, that's Nehemiah. What we get from Ezra as high priest is the temple record. So the people that decided to leave Babylon are in Ezra. The smaller number that actually arrive in Babylon is in Nehemiah. In other words, people died on this trip. It was like an Oregon Trail kind of thing. It got ugly. And we don't get all the stories of that journey, but just seeing the difference in numbers, there were hardships on this trip. And, it, and, it for, and not everybody made it. So there's also a clear indicator that um, there's a humility here that we're going to see in the names tonight. Something's changed with the Jewish people. And I think Ezra 2 shows us that change. They're a more humble people. They name themselves more humbly. There's an acceptance of people that are coming from common trades and common positions. There isn't the same hierarchy that we saw in Israel over the time of kings. So even some of these, I would suggest, sound like nicknames, and, and I enjoy that. We'll get to verse 3, and I, I think you'll pick up on some of these. I'm going to give you the translation as we do the names, and you can just kind of get a sense of this. The people of Parash, which means flee. The people of the flee, right? This 2,172. The people of Shef Hathiah, that means Yahweh has judged. 272. The people of Era, which means wild ox. 775, the people of Pahath Moab, which means the pit of Moab, the people of Yeshua, which means Jehovah's salvation, people of Joab, Jehovah's father, Yo-Abba, <laughs> both are noted names, and interesting, it's like, these names are just, there's a, there's a, this, a, a, a bit of holding on to Jehovah and a bit of just humility that goes along with this. 2,812, the people of Elam, which means eternity, 1,254, the people of Zatu, brightness of him, 945, the people of Zakai, which means pure, 760. So instead of putting Yah in their names, which would have been offensive to the Babylonians, they're still naming themselves kind of Jewish names, they're just not including the Yah, and they're pulling that out. The names show a lot of different influences. A lot of these are Hebrew, but some of these are like old Israel names, and some of these are like common people name, and there's a change in the language. So the difference in Babylon is being intermixed in the Babylonian culture, their language patterns changed over 70 years. So people that are authorities in Hebrew, that is not me, um, would note that some of the spellings change when they come back from Babylon, and a lot of that's the influence of being in the Babylonian culture. Um, we know that Babylon tried to erase the Jehovah names. We know that was an initiative of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 1, verse 7, unto whom the princes of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name Belshazzar, and to Hananiah Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. All of those were removing the Yah from the name and making them Babylonian. So you can do anything you want, you just can't proclaim the name of God. The people of Bani, which means built, 642. The people of Bebai, pupil of the eye, 623. People of Asgad, strong troop. 
1,222. I'm reading all these because the last time I skipped names, I got a hard time that I was skipping the words. So I'm not doing it this time. The people of Adonikam, my Lord has arisen. Again, using my Lord instead of Yah Onikam. 666. Do with that what you want. Verse 14, the people of Bigvi, the body or the garden. 2056. The people of Aden, voluptuous. This was a, a large person. 454. The people of Adder, get this one, lefty. Literally means lefty in an affectionate personal way. Of Hezekiah, 98. The people of Bezai, the shadow of God. Uh, 333, again taking Yah out of the name and just using the generalized God. The people of Jorah, autumn rain, 112. Again, super small numbers. The people of Hashem, which means big nose or broad nose. The people of the big nose guy, 223. The people of Gibar, which means strong man, 95. Again, all of these names suddenly take on a whole different tone when we read through this list. It's very distinct from the other histories. I want to take that paragraph, verse 10, through this. And I just want to read the translated names because, uh, I'm sorry, from verse 3 all the way through 19 here, because it's interesting how these names tell a story when you take the number out, right? So put all these together. The people of the flea, Yahweh has judged, wild acts for the pit of Moab, then Jehovah is salvation and Jehovah's father, eternity, brightness of him, pure, Yahweh has built for the eye, a strong troop, my Lord has arisen in the body, fullness from the left. I don't know how that fits in. Um, but you could say left-handed is also from weakness. It's another way to kind of translate the left hand. Sorry, Steph. Yahweh has built strength out of weakness. A shadow of God like autumn rain, which is cleansing for a broad nose and strong man. Like, honestly, you take all those things and put them together and it kind of tells a story of God doing something here. And broad nose can also mean stubborn, by the way. God's made a path through this. And again, he's doing this through captivity, through hardship, through struggle. And you get these beautiful messages. Perhaps the idea that God will even make a durable church that can turn its cheek and take a hit. A big-nosed guy. You know, somebody that's tough enough to take what needs to be taken. Or a body from the left that'll cleanse the prideful, strong-nosed folks. Right? Either way you read this, there's definitely some cool things there. That God's still at work, even though it doesn't look like it. Seventy years goes by, and these names come out like a story. Virtually no commentators look at these lists as prophetic, and I want to caution what I'm doing here right now. Obviously, these are, these are just names. But when you read them, and there's likely a reason for that, why we back off from reading too much into names. But honestly, when the names read like a story, I just think it's cool. So I'm just sharing it with you because I just think there's a lot of beauty in some of these names. Um, at least they're in interesting enough to keep looking at the names. And that's how I kind of read it. So if the enemies of God can be go to great elaborate lengths to twist the word of God and create weird, confusing theories around it, well, I can go to great lengths to look for more and look deeper in the word of God. I think that's fair game. So, but again, you know, Sean, you're reading too much into the names. Yes, I am. I'll admit that. But I also think it's kind of fun. Um, so the next list is a list of cities. Uh, it shows the settlers are not just going to Jerusalem, but they're going out to all these different towns. And the towns, of course, I'll read the names there too. I didn't see a pattern or a nice, neat story like that last section. Um, but it's good to know, like, some of these names get titles that aren't so prideful either. So I just pick up on some of that. Verse 21. The people of Bethlehem, house of bread, 123. The people Again, 123 is not a lot to get a city up and running again. Really, these are like pioneer settler towns, right? They got the bank, they got the, the feed store, and they got the place where the sheep come when the herdsmen come into town. Very small numbers to build this. That's not much of a city at 123 people. Verse 22. The men of Netophah literally means droppings. 56. The men of Anathoth, answers to prayer, 128. The people of Asmaveth, strong unto death, 42 people. Uh, verse 25, the people of Kirith Aram, the city of forests. Uh, Shephira, lioness, and Be'eroth, wells, 743. The people of Ramah, hill, and Geba, tiny hill, 
<laughs> Big hill and little hill. 621, the men of Michmas, which means hidden, 122, the men of Bethel, house of God, and Ai, ruins, 223, the people of Nebo, that was the name of a prophet, it doesn't really mean anything in the Hebrew, it's a proper name, 52, uh, the people of Magbish, congregating, 156, the people, uh, the people of the other Elam, eternity, one. 1,254, the people of Haram, which means consecrated, to 320, the people of Lod, Travails, Hadid, Sharp, and Ono, that's John's wife. Whoa. No, it doesn't actually mean that. It means vigorous. I was just seeing if you guys were listening, checking in on that. 725, the people of Jericho, city of the moon, or it could mean fragrant. 345, the people of Sena'al means thorny, 3,630. 3, Some of those names in that list, mostly the humbly named ones, are not names we've seen in the Bible before. They're new settlements. So they're, they're titling these settlements, but not necessarily building them on top of other towns. Bethlehem, Rachel was buried there. It comes out as the first city on the list, which is interesting because it's one of the smaller cities. Clearly, Jericho is much bigger. Ai and Bethel, much bigger. But they list Bethlehem first. This is pre-Christmas Jesus. Why are they listing Bethlehem first? It seems odd. If you go through all these names, one theory is maybe it's kind of going by tribe, but there were only three tribes listed last week. So that doesn't quite fit. So then you're just thinking, okay, why is Bethlehem so important? And it might be that Bethlehem's one of the most commonly named towns throughout the Old Testament. This tiny little town known for shepherding in the Judean foothills. Rachel was buried there. Isban was a judge in, in Judges. He was buried there. It's where Naomi and Ruth came and they met Boaz doing farming work. It's a farm town. Samuel finds David there and anoints him as king. And, and they started the last list with Zerubbabel, who's in the line of David. So it could be that they're listing that name first, in part because that was where the king's family would settle in when they moved back. And I think that's an interesting idea, because it would definitely show the humility of Zerubbabel, right? Not taking up a throne, but bringing his family back to his, his homeland, where he came from. And remember, Bethlehem is the place where David wished for a drink of water, 2 Samuel 23, and his men went and got him the water at the wells of Bethlehem. So there's this kind of uh, interesting thing. In Hezekiah's time, this is another reason why it might be listed first, it took on messianic relevance. There was a prophecy with Hezekiah, Micah 5.2, that says, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrath, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, out of you shall come forth unto me, that is to be the ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from old and from everlasting. So while they're in Babylon, and we know they're studying the prophecies because they brought them to Cyrus, they would have also been studying that prophecy. So it could be that as they go into Babylon, they're idol worshipers, but as they come out of Babylon, they're studying the prophets. And they know that Bethlehem's a special city at this point. So all the Jewish people then elevate the value and importance of that city, and it gets listed first, just like Zerubbabel and Yeshua get listed first. That means in these two lists they have, you've got Yeshua and Bethlehem put right up into the first position. Like, they're ready to start looking for Messiah, which is kind of cool, because this is the last era before Messiah shows up. God's given them everything they need in the prophets. So now Bethlehem gets listed first. Despite its size, it's a significant prophetic town, and they know that. So a very mix of small towns and big towns. Obviously, other than that, there isn't really an order to these towns. Like you can't, it isn't going smallest to biggest or anything like that. It isn't geographic. It, it Honestly, it's like a connect the dots thing. It, they're all over the place. So you can try to do more studies as to what it looks like. But I think um, what it is, is they put Bethlehem first and then they just listed the rest. And, and But Bethlehem gets that pole position. Nebo is in Gaza. That's interesting. Even before they were taken away to Babylon, Nebo would have been Philistine territory. It's still Philistine territory. So you got one city here that's not even and never was controlled by the Judean people. So, and interestingly enough, Gaza is still in the news today. And we still see things about that. So they would have gone in and settled alongside Philistines when this return happened. A recording of the families comes next, or the priests in verse 36. Here's the priests. 
the son of Jediah, the house of Yeshua, 973. That's a lot. That's actually a big number from the list we've seen. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pasher, 1,247. The sons of Haram, 1,017. So these are the returning priests. There's 4,253 of them. This is by far the largest group that we have in the whole thing. And that makes sense because they're going back to rebuild a temple. It makes sense the priests would see this as their duty and their job. All of these priests would have been people that bowed to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Uh, we should just know that about the people coming back. God's taking people that have honored or played along with the government of Babylon, and he's redeeming them and pulling them out of that situation because only because of their willingness to go. But it's not that they were perfect or they held their ground. We don't really have a record of that. What we do have a record of is only Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and David that really challenged these laws. That's not to say there weren't more people that challenged them, but the people that are still alive uh, are likely people that complied with what they had to comply with. I think that's interesting as sometimes I think Christians have a tendency to judge one another, but I see God giving a lot of grace in these situations. If you're willing to follow him, there's room to follow him. And he's not looking at history in that kind of way. So uh, yet... Um, of those divisions, we should point this out too. Of the priests, we have Jedediah, Immer, Pasher, and Haram. That's four families. How many rotations of priests or families of priests were listed in 1 Chronicle 24.3? David set up 24 cycles of priests or families. So of the 24 divisions, we only have a record of four of them. That's one-sixth of the priesthood decided to leave Babylon and go do God's work. Like, understanding the group that comes back really gives us a lot of perspective. God has sifted and filtered his, filtered his people here. And we should also, like, tune into the fact that most people, even amongst the biggest group of priests, most priests stayed back in Babylon. It was easier, it was more comfortable, they were doing just fine, and they don't leave. Verse 40, we get the Levites. The sons of Yeshua and Cadmiel, the sons of Hodaviah, 74 Levites. That's a pretty small number. Then the singers, remember David set up 24 cycles of singers? The sons of Asaph, we don't even get family names. 128 of them come back. It's still 128 singers. You can do music with 128 people. It's just not the same affair as when Solomon was reigning or Hezekiah. It's a lot more humble. Verse 42, the sons of the gatekeepers. So that group has people representing them. Sons of Shalom, the sons of Adder, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, 139 in all. Interesting, lots of families, but a small number from each family. You know, and, and, and so we're, but definitely the gatekeepers, there's a bunch of them that come back to do their work. Um, the Levites here are the other Levites that were not serving as priests. And we noticed that the number of Levites at 74, they're almost evaporated from this list. They're almost gone, yet they're still listed. Very small percentage of servants, even less Levites come than priests do. Um, and many of these people, again, were, they had already given themselves over to idol worship while in Babylon. The people coming out are people that lived under a culture that was antagonistic to Jewish faith, but through 70 years they held on to their faith, and now they're ready to go build something with that faith. Then the histories show this next group. I think this is kind of fun. The Nethanim, right? Nethanim uh, in the Hebrew is the word Nathan. It's where we get the name Nathan from. Um, but it means the given ones, people given to a task. They were the grunt workers. You guys remember the Nethanim? No prestige, nothing. Most people believe the Nethanim were the Gibeonites and other people groups that decided to come and follow Yahweh. And they, they would say, you can't be Jewish, but you can join the Nethanim, this group of people that are non-Jewish Yahweh followers. Joshua chapter 9 tells the story of the Gibeonites. They tricked Joshua. Remember, they went out and they got the 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 broken up bottles and they said look at our moldy bread we we came from a long distance and joshua said all right well you know we'll give you a place here and then he found out they lied to him and they just appeal for mercy and then joshua 9 27 he made them day hewers of wood and the drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the lord even unto this day 
in the place where he should choose. So Joshua said, you lied to me, that's not okay, but you know what? You want to come live under God's law, you can come live under God's law. So not all the Canaanites fought the Israelites. Some of them joined. And when they joined, he said, you can come in, you can be day laborers, you can do this. I think what's cool about the Nethanim is that there's as many Nethanim that come back as high, as priests, right? And that these people, even though they got the lowest level work, the most humble of work, they're willing to give up anything and follow Yahweh. And they're still there hundreds of years later. And I don't know if they're still carrying water or chopping lumber like Joshua had them do, but they're still there. They're faithful. This is the definition of faithfulness. They never leave. They're reliable and dependable. So they're grafted into Israel and they're still there hundreds of years later to the point where they're noted here. And I want to point that out. These Gentiles get noted. And we've seen that throughout the Old Testament. Now that we're far enough along, we can look backwards a little bit. Moses at the onset and Joshua at the onset of Judges had the Gibeonites come in as Nethanim. Saul at the onset of Kings had people that joined the nation of Israel. Um, again, here we are in, in Ezra at the onset of foreign rule, the beginning of each of these phases, the Nethanim are still there. They're faithful through the generations. There was also a mixed multitude that came with the Israelites when they left Egypt. So the Nethanim could be the descendants of those people too. Point is, the Jewish people kept a record. They tracked all this. So there's, notice the humility in these names though. They're simple and common names. There's no numbers listed with these. They didn't need to keep track of them because one thing they know about the Nethanim is that they're not going to be the forebearers of the Messiah. There's no point in keeping those records. So the temple records were looking for Messiah. So when Messiah showed up, they could track the stories and look back at their own histories. With the Nethanim, there's no point in writing down the numbers because they don't keep those records. So here's the Nethanim, verse 43. The sons of Zihah, which means parched. The sons of Hashupah, stripped. The sons of Taboth, rings. You know, they don't even have a Lord, but they should. The sons of Keros, ankle. The sons of Siahah, departing. The sons of Padon, ransom. The sons of Lebanon, moon white. The sons of Hagabah, locust or grasshopper. I like grasshopper better. I think he's a martial artist. The sons of Akub, insidious. Honestly, who names their kid insidious? That's a mean mom, right? Oh, that kid, he's a stinker. He's insidious. At 46, the sons of Hagab, locust. The son of Shalmai, garments. The sons of Hanan, or he is merciful. There's a decent name. The sons of Giddle, too great. And what kind of mom names their kid? My kid is awesome. This kid's too great. The sons of Gahar, hiding place. The, maybe that, that was a kid that got hidden when he was born. The sons of Rehahiah, Jehovah has seen. The sons of Rezin, firm. The sons of Nekoda, distinguished. The sons of Gazim, eats up. I know exactly what kind of parent names their kid. That kid's an eater. Put anything in front of them, they just eat it up. Verse 49, the sons of Uzzah, strong. The sons of Passa, limper. The son, you kind of can guess they, that's the limping guy. The sons of Basai, treading. The sons of Asna, storehouse. The sons of Meunim, habitations. The sons of Nefusim, scattered spice. The sons of Bakbuk. Literally, backbug, the, the Hebrew people believe this is the sound somebody makes. So it would be like naming your kid Glug Glug, right? It's the sound that makes when you have a big bottled thing with a narrow top on it and you drink from it. And they believe it's, what's the word for that, English people? It's an onomatopoeia. So this person isn't like a real name. Basloth would be, it's the sound that you make when you drink from a bottle. Um, I'm sorry, Babuk. The sons of Hakuba, which means bent. The sons of Harher, which means swell or inflaming. This kid's swell. The sons of Bazluth, which means to make naked. Uh, you know, we're, these are not high caste kinds of names. Right? High society doesn't name their kid this. And then I, the making naked is not a name that you name your kid unless you just think it's hilarious. The sons of Mahida, which means famous. The sons of Harsha, which means mute. The sons of Barkos, which means painter. The sons of Sisera, which means battle array. 
the sons of Tama. I like that one, Laughter. We actually name our kids' names like Joy, right? And this kid's named Laughter. The sons of Neza, Neza, which means sincere. The sons of Hadapha, which means seized or caught or captured. Um, obviously, these are common names. Naming the hopes of the parents, naming some of the physical disabilities that they're nicknamed according to how you would recognize them on the street. And it sounds like a group of people that, I don't know, this sounds like a group of people I'd want to hang out with on a Sunday, right? I, I think I kind of want to know why, you know, Bab Buck is named what he's named. You know, pass that guy the juice and see what happens. So I, I th I'm thinking great family gatherings, great picnics, great barbecues. And here's the best thing, great servants of the Lord. The Nethanim do all the hard work and they get none of the glory. And they're just joyful in that. These people, I think, identify with God to the degree that they, they can live in Babylon for 70 years and they come back. And here's the better part. God actually keeps careful track of them by their nicknames. And God, I, I think for God to list them and note them, here we are thousands of years later reading their names out loud. And that's God's interaction with his people. Have no doubt about it. There's the Lamb's Book of Life that we're told exists in heaven. God's written your name down. And I think he knows your nickname too. And I think it's up to God's own humor as to which one he's going to use in the book. We're also told God has a name for us too. Like he's named us something. And we're going to get to heaven and find out the name that God's given to us. Don't forget how precious these names are to God. That no word of the scriptures is wasted. They're all important. And for these people to take this leap of faith, to leave everything behind and go build God's house, mm, these are the kind of people that get their name in the scriptures. Humble, loyal, faithful servants. And some names might be uh, families that joined David from the Canaanites too. We got mixed languages groups here. These aren't all Hebrew names. Some of them are other kinds of language groups. So the, the same with this next group that's coming up. We get the sons of Solomon's servants. So a group of people that came and served Solomon, remember he had people coming up from Africa and over from India and from Europe. He had people coming from all over the world. Apparently some of them stayed. They said, I'd rather live under Yahweh than go back home. So these servants of Solomon are non-Jewish people. We know that from the names. And they have these kind of interesting names. But some of these are going to make Grant laugh. The sons of Sotai, which means changeling. Uh, for you, you know, gamer people and fantasy people, that's an interesting name. The sons of Sophereth, which means writer. The sons of Peruda, a grain or a grainier, somebody who deals with grain. Uh, honestly, these... These, are these even names or are these just their job titles? Uh, my middle name is Mason, which means to work with bricks and use do masonry. So some people have names that mean what their profession is. And the sons of Ja'ala, rising. The sons of Darkon, yes, it, it means Lord of the Sith. No, I'm just kidding. It means scatterer or someone who scatters things. The sons of Giddle, too great. The sons of Chef. Shephatiah, judged by Jehovah, the sons of Hatiel, which means doubtful, sons of Pokereth of Zebaim, hunting gazelles, sons of Ami, which means bondservant, someone who serves out of love. All the Nethanim and the children of Solomon's servants were 392, not many, but kind of awesome. And that's a bigger group than a lot of the families of the Israelites that came back. Definitely more than the priests more than the singers, more than the Levites, and more than the gatekeepers. If you take Levites, singers, gatekeepers, there's more Nethanim than those three groups combined coming back. And they're just there to do service. I don't think there's any expectation that they're going to ever be made into priests, but they just love the Lord and they want to come back and be part of it. And these were the ones who came up from Tel Mela, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adam, and Immer. All of those cities are Babylonian cities. So they're coming from all over Babylon, not just Babylon itself. But they could not identify their father's house or their genealogy, whether they were even of Israel. So these are a group of people, they don't even know what family they're part of. Wow. Um, it says the effect of the cultural appropriation of the Babylonians. They clearly did have the effect of helping some of the Jews forget their family name. And they, there, there were some of them that did that. I still, I love these folks. They don't even know if they're Jewish or part of the family. But they still want to come back. 
And this is a pretty good sized population too that failed to keep track of or identify their family tree. Making it so they're definitely not going to be in the line of Messiah, but now they want to go. So folding under Babylonian pressure, not true followers, and disassociated even from the, the traditions of the Jews. Um, but at this point, they show up, and at this point, they're welcomed back in. So God doesn't just exclude people because they screwed up under Nebuchadnezzar. They're still allowed to go. And I love the treatment we're going to get here in a couple of verses. The idea is you can come with us, and God's going to sort out where you belong. And if you don't know where you belong, you don't even know what city you're going back to. Literally, you're picking up everything, leaving everything behind, not knowing where God will put you. But you're still willing to go. Like, I'll serve, Lord. It doesn't matter where you send me. I'm happy to just go. And honestly, this trip out of Babylon is very reflective to our trip spiritually when we leave the world and we go to follow Jesus. There's definitely reflections of the mindset that's needed to do that. Same idea. When somebody falls away and they return, they're welcome back in. These are prodigal children that come. So some interesting reinstating of them to leadership. Uh, the sons of Deliah, drawn by Jehovah. The sons of Tobiah, got good as Jehovah. And the sons of Nakoda, distinguished. 652. And the sons of the priests, sons of Habaiah, hidden by Jehovah, sons of Koz, which means thorn, or literally the sons of Spike is how that's translated. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'd like to be traveling back and doing this trip going, what's your name? And the guy says, Spike. This is a rough group that's coming back with these people. Um, he just, they're like, what's your name? We're trying to get the records. My name's Spike. All right. And they just write it down and he's like, I'm in. What tribe are you from? I don't know. Okay, so what family are you in? I don't know. My dad's name is Spike. I'm, I'm with them. All right, sign here. Put your, put your name next to Darkon, and we'll get you on the road. Thanks for coming. The sons of Barzillai, this is an interesting one. The translated word for Barzillai is actually Iron Man. So the sons of Iron Man, uh, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai. He just married into the family, um, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. Fits right in with Spike, right? Spike, Iron Man, Darkon, all these good guys. Um, we know Barzillai. We do have some history with him. 2 Samuel 19, he's the Gentile that actually supported David when he was on the run. And in that support of David, as a Gentile, he gets brought into the family. He gets taken to Babylon because he's gotten some reputation and wealth. And then he's still sticking with the Lord, even as they come back out of Babylon. And at this point, Barzillai went to Babylon, probably a rich man. He's coming out of Babylon, maybe not so rich. And he can't prove his heritage or anything like that. But, you know, he's related to Iron Man. So a non-Jew that helped David when he's fleeing from Abazon. And then you get this Barzillai who actually just took his name because he married one of his daughters. I like your family so much, I'm going to take your name. And I'm just going to call myself Barzillai. Iron Man, because I like it. I think it's great. Usually you see women taking their husbands' names throughout the Bible, and even in American culture today. This is one instance where the dude took the wife's name because that was a name of honor. That's the name of Barzillai. And my family's not much of anything, so I'll take that name if it's okay. Think of the humility of these people. What kind of group is going back? Yeah, you got Zerubbabel, a fallen, throneless king, and you got Spike, Traveling right alongside them. And, and, and you don't have like much better than the others when you do this. Of course, you got Iron Man. So that's a good way to end the list. 62. These sought their listing among those who were registered by the genealogy. They kept records. But they were not found. I don't see your name here, buddy. I still want to go. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. We're going to stick to God's word. 62 is important. It shows us that... During that 70 years, they didn't just study the prophets, they studied the law too. And the law is if you can't show your heritage as, a, as, as one of the priests of Aaron, you're not in the priesthood. So if you can't show that with the record genealogy, they don't let them be in the priesthood. They're going to actually stick to the law. Why do they have to do that? Because the law says so. They don't give another reason. Verse 63, And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things until a priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. If you look back at the Urim and Thummim, basically they're saying to these people, you can't prove that you're a priest, so what we're going to do is we're going to use the Urim and the Thummim to find out if you're a priest or not. 
And we're going to let God decide that. But here's the thing. The Urim and Thummim has everything to do with the high priest, little pockets in the ephod. Until they rebuild the temple and reinstate the high priest in that temple, this could be years before they can pull out the Urim and the Thummim. It's to do it the right way. So the idea here is that there's a respect for the law, the lineage that is required, and they want to do it the right way, which shows us something about their attitude as they're coming back as a group of people. It's a group of people saying, we just want to know God's law and live how God says to live. In the end, we're all going to go to heaven and our name's either in the book or it's not. And it's not like we're going to have to go to the Urim and the Thurim because Jesus the judge is right there. And if your name's not written in the book of life, you don't get to move forward. You get cast out. And so this idea of being in the book or not being in the book becomes an interesting thing throughout the history of the, of the kingdom. And it's going to be there at the end too. God doesn't care about the earthly lineage. And I think that's important to note. All these people get to come in and help rebuild the house of God. And God really lets people in no matter what. In that sense, our Father in heaven recognizes us as adopted into the family. And when you're adopted, you have a home, you have a place. Um, you know, Philippians 4.3, I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. If you're working, your name's in the book of life. And it's not your works that save you. I, I, I got to repeat that every time I say something like this. But God sees the work you do for the kingdom. It's recognized. It's noted. It's captured. God's a very good record keeper. And the records show Jews in Babylon were full citizens. They were wealthy. They were established. These people coming back are walking away from a pretty good situation. We know from Babylonian records, especially trade records, that Jewish names in Babylon were trading very large amounts of money. So the banks, they were able to take out a loan from the bank. They were able to buy large houses. So there, there's a significant evidence that they thrived in Babylon, just like they thrived in Egypt until the Pharaoh had issues with them. Something about living under the law helps you to thrive as a, a people. And the Jews live under the law and they thrive. Some of them follow Yahweh. We see those names continuing. We know some of them, Ezekiel 8.1, were doing Bible studies in their homes. So through 70 years, there was a remnant that continued to do it. They had underground synagogues for 70 years in Babylon, which we have record of. Babylonian archaeology shows record of Jewish people living there, which means they made little carvings of their lamps, the what do you, menorahs, and they would do those kinds of things. So we have a lot of evidence of this going on, and this idea that God's people got coalesced or unified, but it was a small remnant of them that did that. So living under Babylonian rule, you could say was not good for Jewish people because a lot of them just became Babylonians. But you could also say, actually, God just filtered out the church. He got rid of the riffraff. The people that didn't want to follow him stayed in Babylon. And then we know also, and I should say this in defense of Daniel, there were some very godly people that stayed in Babylon. So we can't judge them necessarily. We, we, we know that we have people that God told to come back and help rebuild the house, but he had other people like Daniel that he told to stay in Babylon. And so God's people now are in two major places on the earth. Um, honestly, the people that stayed in Babylon would have been the whole school of the Magi because we know from the birth of Jesus that there were people from that school that came to visit and honor Jesus when he was born. So there were people in Babylon that were looking for Messiah and that were still there. So um, verse 64, the whole assembly together was 42,360, over 10,000 that are not accounted for when they show up in Nehemiah 7. So they lost about one out of every four people either died on the trip or said they were going to go, but then didn't go through with it. So that number gets even smaller when we get to Nehemiah. Uh, other tribes aren't even listed. That doesn't mean other tribes didn't come back. It means there weren't enough of them to note. Um, so you'd have to do some study and find out if we can get the records of what family each of those family names were part of. Um, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, they had 200 men and women singers. <laughs> so lots of servants. These were not poor people. If you have a servant in any culture in world history, you're at least middle class or up, right? So they actually brought their servants back with them. Um, 
another indicator that they're doing well. Verse 66 is yet another indicator. They didn't just have donkeys at this point. They have horses. So verse 66, their horses were 736, their mules 245. Frankly, there's more mules than priests. I, that's just ironic. Verse 67, their camels, 435. Their donkeys, 6,720. Lots of people to walk, but we're going to see in a few verses, it was probably not people riding on these animals. It was probably all of the wealth they brought with them on these animals. So skiffs would have been carried behind them in that case. Not an army. This is a migration, but they're not empty-handed. And, and that gives room for a lot of optimism. They're going, but they're also going with what God provides them to go do the work God has put before them. They're not going without knowing how that's going to work. So it had to be shocking when this very excited group of people with all this hope and they come over the hill and they're like, there's Jerusalem. And what they see is an abandoned city that's been ripped apart. When the Babylonians left it, they tore the whole temple down. So that had to be kind of a, oh, this is going to take some work. When they get there, like they got to build this thing up. The walls were tore down. So, you know, just thinking of that sense of kind of marching out of Babylon with all that hope and excitement, losing a ton of people, 10,000 people. And then you get there and you realize, oh my goodness, there's a ton to do here. And how are we going to get through that? Verse 66, some of the heads of the father's houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is Jerusalem. And I think, that, again, this is why I'm saying, like, I think they realize, oh my goodness, we got to do some things here. They offer freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. When they arrive, verse 68, they realize it's going to take more than what we brought. And so some of the heads of the houses are like, I'm going to give a little, we're going to need more resources for this. Verse 69, according to their ability, that's key. They gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minus of silver, 100 priestly garments. Again, the point here isn't necessarily how much they gave, but that it's a lot, right? They gave a ton of extra out of their own pockets. So they had wealth, but they want to use it for the building. They see the need and they give based on the ability they have to give. So I don't know if Spike gave a ton, but some of the other people probably gave what they could give. There's a willingness that the writer wants us to be aware of. They offered freely, verse 68. They did it with a cheerful heart. They highlight that this isn't begrudging. They didn't have to get told to do this. They just, of their own accord, start freely offering. And the word there is really just they did it not because they had to, but because they wanted to. Um, so we should note, they're not poor people. They have resources. Um, but when it comes time, when they see need for the house of God, they look at what they have and they give according to their ability. The Holy Spirit moves them to give because they see need. And so people do this, I think, when they're unified in the Spirit and they see that God's going to do a work here and they help to do it. Verse 69, they gave according to their ability. I think the Bible does regard and credits them for their help. Um, one thing they don't do is go through a list of how much each person gave. And I think this is important. Where the Bible recognizes that people gave and they gave with a free heart, that's beautiful. But it doesn't really matter how much they give. They do a sum total at the end. They don't do a person by person. And Zach gave this much and Katie gave this much and Paul gave this. And I don't think we do that in the church because what are you doing? You're shaming people that can't give as much as so-and-so. So when you see a place where they've put somebody's name on the pew to give them honor because of how much they gave, that's a red flag to me. Like, you don't see that biblically, right? This idea of saying like, hey, we as a congregation are going to do this and we're going to honor God and say, look at what God did. Look at how much he provided. We're not going to go single out people and give special praise. You know, they gave freely. They gave according to their ability. But the one coin from the old widow is worth just as much as tons of stuff from the Pharisee. It's the idea is what heart do they have when they do it? So 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Even in the church, there's this idea that people give according to their ability. And part of that is because we're blessed when we're able to do things for the Lord. So there's this regular routine planned giving called tithe, but there's also this thing saying, here's a mission, here's a work that we want to do as a body, and people just volunteering to help make that happen. So settling in, 
that Israel now has Jews again and a mixed multitude, the Nethanim. And then verse 70, so the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. They all go and they find their homes. They start to fix it up, get a place to sleep, get a mattress, you know, get to where they're set up. And God doesn't expect them to do the temple until they do that. There's another passage where they start building palaces and God has an issue with that. Why are you building palaces for yourself? David got upset about this. Why would I build a palace for me when God doesn't have a place to worship yet? And so there's a balance here too. They have to go fix up all these little towns that were listed. They have to unpack. They got to take a shower, put on some deodorant, freshen up a bit. And then in verse, then, well, I'm going to read the first verse of Ezra 3. And when the seventh month had come, so they take seven months to just go unpack. Get settled, get stuff going, plant your seeds. You know, seven months is going to definitely hit one of the two growing seasons in Israel. Um, and the children of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. So after seven months, they agree, we're all going to meet back in Jerusalem and sort out this problem of building God a house. And I just this image, again, is very reflective of church living. Like, we know we want to build this. We know we want to do this thing. We have a mission to do it together. And then God's people say, okay, well, get your lives in order, get things set up, and then let's just see what we have to do and what resources we have to do it with. And they start making these decisions. So I like the idea that in Ezra, we get a picture of a unified Israel. Remember they left for Israel and it was Judah and the northern tribes were gone. And anybody that was migrated to Judah during those times when Assyria was coming, at this point, they're just Israel. And the, the whole tribe thing tends to dissolve a little bit as we get into Ezra and Nehemiah. Now they're just Jews. They're not Jude, Judah Jews. They're just Jews. And historically, to this day, we don't name them by their tribes. We just name them as Jewish people. And that, so that name is just stuck. And they gather together as one man. The, they're, again, the, the, the writer here is pointing out they're unified with a common vision. And nobody's better, so-and-so is not better than Spike. Iron Man is not better than, you know, the city of droppings. You know, this, all these things mixed together and you have the common with the wealthy, the wealthy with the poor, everybody giving according to they can. And they're not just giving money. We're going to see in the next chapter, they actually give their time. And they give their ability to do work. They give the work of their hands towards the building of God's temple. And I like to think that that idea of just working together as one person is that there isn't competition between each other, right? They're not comparing themselves to one another in the same way that they don't compare each other's gifts to one another. Here's the total amount that the congregation brought. It's a mixed multitude. It's a small remnant of the number of people that would have been in Babylon. And it's a remnant that comes that has trials and hardships in the journey, but then they arrive and they arrive in unity. So with Moses, when they walked through the wilderness, remember people rebelled? That doesn't happen this time. With, with the judges and the kings, they kept going back to idols. That doesn't happen this time. The Jews never go back to idol worship again. They're a different people when they come out of Babylon. In other words, Babylon wasn't so bad for the Jews. It, it sifted them, it sorted them, and what came out and what came back was a unified Israel under the Lord God Almighty with, without even having the sovereignty of an earthly throne, right? Persia's still in charge. They only have a governor. They don't have a king anymore. And you know what? That's good for Israel. It's not so bad that they're humbled. In their humility, they're able to build the temple that Jesus is going to show up in and take his authority, which is kind of cool. Like, that's the temple. It's not Solomon's temple. It's the one Jesus shows up at. So they get that honor, and that's where we'll cut off for tonight. We'll pick up next week in, in Ezra 3, verse 2. Dear Lord, we thank you for your teaching. We thank you for these histories, that we have them. We thank you for the ways in which we can examine things and know something about your hand in history. And we thank you that we have access to those things. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit blesses us with these words. I pray that they're, they're on our mind all week that we're thinking of some of these names and peoples, and these are people we get to meet in heaven and talk with and hear their stories. Why did they come? Where did they go? Who did they lose on the trail? Um, was it exciting? Was it scary? And Lord, we don't know all of that from this history. We just know their name so we can find them. Lord, I pray you bless us as we're just a group of people, all walks of life, all different places, and we're trying to serve you. 
Lord, I just pray you accept that as an honorable sacrifice and that, that our names are also written in the book of life, not because of what we did, but because we, we choose to follow you and go where you send us. And so I pray for this week as we go out into it, may you bless it, may you keep us, and may you just anoint each person in this room to be an agent of your kingdom and to be an ambassador and a, rep, a representative of your kingdom. So Lord, we know that, that you see and search the world for good men and women that will serve you. And there's no one good but you. So Lord, our righteousness is appointed unto us by you. And so Lord, we just pray that we can live in that righteousness. We can be um, respectful of it and we can live in such a way that we give it honor and glory.